So here we are, uh, Malachi, 12th of the 12 minor prophets. We worked all the way through them. This guy happens to be the last, also chronologically, so yay for that. Uh, good things. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed the series so far, and it, not just enjoyed it as far as it being entertaining, but I hope you've enjoyed it in the fact that it's helped build your faith and grow your faith. Of course, if you've missed any of these, every single minor prophet has a message that is applicable for us today. That's one thing I hope that you've picked up through this series. We have them all online at funchurch.com, and you're welcome to go back and just download and to listen to those um, because I know that these are books that we don't oftentimes get to and because there is that strange gap of culture and time and language and, and situation that sometimes makes it difficult for us to figure out where the application if you're reading those and you come into a time where you're like wow I'm having a hard time please go back uh, that's why they're there to help you grow closer to the Lord well today we we finish up uh, from Malachi here's a um, Here's a memory verse that may sound like a conversation you might have had with your parents when you're a teenager. And I believe that's what God kind of felt like when he said it. He says this, if I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? And this really encapsulates the heart of the message of Malachi. So uh, that's a real easy one to memorize, but it's a very powerful one because it talks about our motivations in life. And uh, as you'll see, this was a nation that knew God, but didn't really honor him. And it, because things got, life got in the way. And boy, can that happen, right? <laughs> and what a reminder about who God is and how it should affect our life. That's a passage that you don't want just in your head. You want to be living in your heart and your attitude. So please take out that memory verse card that's in your bulletin. And you can put that in your pocket or your wallet or whatever. And, and remind yourself this week of who God is. And, and really meditate on that. What does that really mean in your life? And, how, and uh, how are we responding to God? So let that be a good tool for you. So here we are, Malachi. Now, I apologize if I accidentally pronounce his name Malachi. It's just when I was a first and early Christian. Uh, yeah, right? It's a Roman Catholic church. I thought, well, what are you going to do? Uh, but it also helps you spell it. Malachi. Malachi addresses a question of three that I think that we really ask a lot. At least something is in my personal life and pastoral ministry. Uh, questions that we, we hear a lot. If God is so good, why are things so bad? You ever ask that question? You ever heard that question asked, especially by, by skeptic stuff? How about this? Where are God's promises being kept? God has some amazing promises in the Bible for us. Now, there are times in your life where it doesn't seem like he's keeping good on those promises. If you've been walking with the Lord long enough, there will be times that you're going to ask, where are God's promises being kept? Where is it that the church is actually storming the gates of hell or that God's providing for all of his people at all times? Sometimes we look at our current situations and with our perspective that we have at that moment, we might ask, where are God's promises? Or what good is it really to love God? I mean, if you look into the world today, just be honest, uh, it seems like it's a lot easier to be a non-believer, isn't it? I mean, you'll fit in. You're not going to be criticized. Uh, you don't have these, these moral framework, which stands in opposition to the moral framework of today. And so it's just going to be easier. And we find that if, you don't, if you're not burdened by all of these, I don't know, morality that we have and fear of God, you could just rip people off and you could really probably climb the, the ladder a lot faster and make a lot more money and, and it just seems like you could just have a lot more fun. Of course, all that is, is pretty small thinking, but 
that's the way that, it, you know, for, for a lot of folks, they look at our faith and they say, what is it really, what good is it to follow the Lord? Doesn't it seem like oftentimes the wicked prosper and the righteous just suffer? You know, the people that, that Malachi writes to, they're asking these questions. And the prophet answers them directly, standing, God inspires them. This is how God answers these deep questions that we ask so that we don't lose faith. And that we stick with him. The book starts with this. This is a message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Now we look at there. This is, this is a message that God has. And I hope you understand this is God's message to God's people. And though we are not the first hearers of this, this is a message for us. That's why it was recorded in scripture. That's why it was written. This wasn't just Malachi's idea of, of how things should be. This is God's message for us. And God delivered it through this prophet. Um, and I'm so glad that he did. Okay, so the author's not Zedekiah. The author is Malachi. I don't know why that's in there. <laughs> so Zechariah. So it's actually Malachi. There was, uh, Malachi means, the name itself means, uh, it means uh, God's spokesman, right? And so uh, there are those that do think that actually Zechariah wrote this because of some of this um, things that he writes. Some people actually think that Nehemiah might have written a book. However, uh, tradition and uh, the style of language stuff, really a lot of people think that Malachi was just a guy named Malachi. And how cool is that? He lived up to his name. Uh, his parents prepared him for this and he spoke. In fact, uh, rabbinic tradition teaches that he's part of the great synagogue, which eventually became the, where the Pharisees came from. But way back then, it was about let's have a pure and right faith before God. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, the time that he writes, this is correct, is 432 to 425 BC. And the reason that we have nailed down um, the dates after 432 has to do with what was happening in in the um, in the nation there. And uh, what happens is there's this guy um, Ezra who gets sent in from the uh, uh, from the Persians, and he goes down there to rebuild the city. And the Persians say, please do go down, rebuild the city. And so he does. And he brings a, uh, a group of people back with him, about 458. And uh, then he starts to rebuild the wall. And as we, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find out that Ezra got some uh, trouble because he was rebuilding the wall and the, the uh, emperor basically didn't authorize the rebuilding of the wall yet. And so he gets kind of... He doesn't get called back, but he kind of loses a lot of authority. Well, then later on, not very much further after, there's a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was also sent down uh, by Xerxes and uh, Artaxerxes and to go and to actually finish the wall. So now that it's, it's, it's Artaxerxes has got the approval, he sends Nehemiah down. Wall's finished in no time flat. And so Nehemiah then is kind of the, the ruler over Jerusalem at the time. He writes, so there's a book of the Bible that you can read that talks about that. And then um, he does a great job. And so he gets called back to Persia by Artaxerxes, probably for a commendation. And there was a, a, a good year to two year period in which he was gone. And there would have been a different Persian governor over Jerusalem. And so there's a phrase in here that talks about, uh, it says, tribe offering those types of things to your governor that uh, see how well he likes it. Well, Nehemiah wouldn't accept offerings from his people. And so we know that this didn't happen while Nehemiah was there. There was a little gap in which uh, 
Nehemiah was gone and there was a Persian governor. So that's how we've nailed down the time is in that gap period between 432 and 425. Uh, why 425? Well, we're not exactly sure when he came back, but we know he was definitely back by 425. So that's the time period. Um, if you want to learn about more, there's a lot of crazy people that talk about the dates of those things. Pretty fascinating. But here's what's happening. And these are the bigger picture things. The temple was finished in 515. All right. Uh, we had the last couple of weeks talked about how the temple was being built. It was. It was finished. 515. Then we have all of those really great promises Zechariah talks about last week. Right. The things that God's going to do is going to bring the nations back. They're going to worship the Lord throughout all the places. Jerusalem is going to be a place that's going to be honored amongst the nations. All these great things that happened in 515. It was finished. And uh, not a lot of the promises. Some of the promises were fulfilled, but none of them hadn't been fulfilled yet. And so time passes. Nehemiah comes back, finishes the temple. It's 432. It's done. And then we have uh, the faith of the people starts to grow cold. Because they see, they see the work of God happening and they're excited while it's happening, but the fulfillment of all the promises haven't happened. And then it just time passes. And they stop feeling that momentum. And they start asking, why should I even bother anymore? Is God really in this nation? Did he just partially keep his promises? And so they stayed faithful to their God in a way that they didn't worship the gods from around other nations. But their hearts weren't in their worship anymore. And they, they stopped believing in the promise, the full promise of God. And so their faith became less of a relationship and more of just a cold religion. And so God sends Malachi to, to bring the people back into a love relationship with him. Here is the outline. God's love for Israel is where he begins with. He starts out by reminding the people that he's always loved them. And it is by his grace that he is there for them. And then he goes to this, this thing where he shows that the priests themselves had this failure to love God. And in this portion right here, uh, if you read Nehemiah, you're going to see a lot of parallels because they're writing at the same time and the same kind of things where the priests were just not honoring God at all. And they were going through the motions, but their heart wasn't in it. And then he goes to the next section as he talks about how the people failed to love God. The people of Israel that were redeemed, that were there, how they themselves were following the priest's example and how they were just kind of giving God their leftovers. And they were, they were faithful in name, but not really in their hearts. And their hearts were far from God. And then at the very end, he gives an example of faithfulness. What does it mean to turn back to God? And then and there's a people that did that. And then he has this call and promise, this, this call. What does it mean? What is God looking for for us? And a promise that he himself is going to return and, uh, and even predicts the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah right there at the end. The theme of the book is love. And as we look at what's the heartbeat behind this book, it is God loves his people, but he also expects and requires his people to love him in return. And it's not an unrational, unreasonable request. I mean, think of any relationship. If you have a friend, right, you care for them, you expect them to care for you. If you're married to someone, you love them, you expect them to love you back. And so God is, is not so different. He's not being unreasonable. He's saying, I love you. But if you want a relationship, he, he needs to be loved in return. And so he's teaching us how to do that. So the very beginning of the book, it says, uh, God starts with his love for Israel. He says, I have always loved you, says the Lord. And then it says, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? 
And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor, Jacob. And he goes right back to the beginning. Now, in this, uh, there's a tie between Jacob and Esau. But I want you to see first how the book is written. It's called uh, didactic dialectic. And uh, he's I know, it's crazy. This is what I mean. There's a conversation that's happening, and it's proving a point. It's like going into a courtroom. And, and so the prophet tells the people where their heart really is. And then the people say, how prove it that that's where our heart really is? And then he proves that's where their heart really is. And so you could see the heart of the people. God says, you, he says I love you. And he's like, oh, fine. You really love us? How? Prove it. And God starts right at the beginning and he says, I tell you what, I loved Esau. I loved you. I loved Jacob. And he says, Esau, I hated. Now that's in contrast to them. But what he's showing here is that through that passage, he says that Jacob wasn't a better man than Esau. In fact, if we read scripture, we know that probably Esau was a better man than Jacob. Jacob was a, was a, a liar, a cheat, a coward. But God shows him, and he shows him that God shows Israel by grace. Not because they deserved it, because he loved them. And God saved Israel by grace. They didn't earn the promised land. And he talks about how he brings them back to the promise, despite the fact that they should have lost the promised land many, many times over. And at the very end of that, he talks about how God keeps Israel by his grace. Israel is not destroyed, though their actions, they, they probably should be. And so he, he shows them, listen, you were no better than Edom. You were no better than Esau. But you were, you were saved by grace. You, you are, are, are chosen by grace. You are kept by his grace. And, and the thing here is, uh, we look at the heart of God that, it wasn't us or our beauty that he chose. It's because of his great love. He proves that he loves us. We didn't, we didn't have to be lovely first. And that's what he's showing the people. He's like, you deserve to be where Edom's at. It's not like he's treating Edom poorly. In fact, if you think that he's picking on Edom, just read Amos. He talks about why Edom is being treated the way they are. The thing is that Israel should be treated like Edom. And the only reason they're not is because they have a God who loves them, who chooses them. That's an amazing thing. Now, after he talks about his love for them and proves that love, he talks about how they're priests, the ones who are supposed to represent the people to him and him to the people, how they've failed in this love. And it says, the Lord of heaven's armies, which is a term that is used so much in this, these post-exilic writings, the Lord of heaven, God who is in charge of all things and powerful over all things, can make his will done. God! He says, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? But you have shown contempt for my name. But look at this, they say, but you ask, where have we ever shown contempt for your name? And is that a lot of times we just don't even think about how we're treating God poorly because we're not thinking about God. And he shows them and he talks about it. He says, listen, God... If he's really our father, it means that we really do honor him. Today, Mike says that he led us through our statement of faith. <laughs> I believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. And we really believe that that. We really believe that God the Father is our father. Then we, we recognize that he deserves honor. Just like a human father would deserve honor. 
How much more a perfectly heavenly father? But he also talks about, he says, if I'm your master, if I'm your Lord, where is the respect? Recognize that God is not just some other person. He's not on par with us. He is not a peer. And if we really believe that in our lives, he's asking the priests as well, where is that respect? Does your life match your statement of faith? Of course, it doesn't for them. And he talks about how they haven't. The first thing they've done is they've neglected the sacrifice. He says, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Of course, they don't believe this. And they say, then you ask how we brought you defiled sacrifices. And then he says, you defile them by saying that the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. You know, it's, it, I, I think it's interesting. You have shown contempt. To bring God our leftovers or anything but our best is contempt because he is father and master. He deserves our best just by the nature of who he is. And when we confess that's who he is and yet we bring him our leftovers, we are showing him contempt. It's like if you have, if you're married to somebody and for your anniversary you bring them dead roses because they were just easier. It's what you had from last year. It's a gift. A gift that shows that you don't truly love them. A gift that shows them that they don't really have a place of, of, of preeminence in your heart. A gift that shows them that you, tr- you view them like a leftover because you bring them leftovers. And God shows that he feels the exact same way. And he says, how do they do that? They bring all kinds of lousy animals. You bring blind animals sacrifices. Isn't that wrong? Isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? They're not bringing God their best. They're bringing God the animals they wouldn't want anyway. And then he points out, he says, listen, this would never work for anybody. He said, try giving gifts like that to your governor, which is how we date the book, by the way. But try giving gifts like that to your governor. See how they like it. You know, we look at our own lives and we think about how do we treat God. And we say, if I treated, I don't know, somebody else that I care for the same way that I treat God, would he feel loved? Would that be acceptable? I mean, it's really an introspective question because it's not just going through the motions. God was never about religion. He's not about us dotting I's and crossing T's. It's about giving, he's about us giving him his, our heart to really love him and to show him that love and to really honor him and to show him that honor from that, that depth level that says, I don't bring him my best because I have to. I bring him my best because I love him, because I want to, because I get to. And the priests didn't see this. And the priests just went through the motions because it was their job. And God was none too pleased. And he did not feel loved. And so he says this, how I wish one of you just shut the temple doors. (laughs) You wouldn't offer these worthless sacrifices. It's so tragic. The people were bringing gifts to God that were really... They were counterproductive. God says, it's better that you wouldn't even have for sacrifices at all than bringing me your, your leftovers, your second-hand bits. Because all you're saying to me every time you bring those things is that you love everything in this world more than you love me. You love yourself more than me. You are, you are proving to me that you're not really mine. God would prefer no gifts over our leftovers. I think that's an important spiritual lesson, isn't it? We should bring him our best because he deserves our best. 
And what a joy it should be for us to bring him. He chose us by his grace. He saved us by his grace. He keeps us by his grace. And he gives us all great things. God may not receive the honor and respect due him from Israel, but then he talks about the someday and he prophesies someday. His name is going to be honored and feared amongst even the Gentiles. It's not the fact that he is less lovely. God doesn't have, it's not as though God says to the people, bring me these things because I, am, I have these, these needs. That I, I have this, this self-identity crisis and if you don't love me the way that I should, I'm going to feel bad about myself. God is very comfortable in his own spirit. Right? He's saying, listen, you guys aren't recognizing who I am. You're not valuing me for who I truly am. You're not giving me the love that I deserve. And I will tell you that even, even those Gentiles that live in darkness right now will recognize who I am and they will bring me the honor I deserve. Because our God is an awesome God. And he is worthy. Oh, is he worthy? Not only are they they're neglecting the sacrifice, they're neglecting the service. They were saying, it's too hard to serve the Lord. And you turn up your nose at my command, says the Lord of heaven and armies. Because, you know, it's, it is work. To love and to honor God, it's work. It's going to have to just get into their lives a little bit. And he's got these rules and regulations and things because he's teaching the people something about holiness and love and purpose. And they looked at those rules instead of saying, this gives us purpose for living. We are on mission. Our lives have meaning. We have a God who loves us. They saw what God had for them in their lives and they said, oh, I can't do that. And then when they did do it, it was all begrudging. It was like, oh, guess we'll bring these sacrifices that represent that God's saving us by his grace That's what they're doing. Because it's just too hard to really serve God and love Him. Can you imagine if your best friend said, you are so wearying to like. We'll go out to coffee, I guess. That's how they treated God. And then he says to them, you know what? He reminds them of who he is. The curse is a cheat that promises to give fine ram from his flock or the sacrifices that are deflective unto the Lord. He says, because I am a great king. And he, he knows exactly who he is. And he knows exactly what he deserves. And he has throngs of angels around his throne 24-7 worshiping him in his holiness and his honor. There are saints in heaven right now bowing and worshiping God. For ages and ages to come, he is worthy and he knows who he is. And he will not accept our leftovers. He is not, he's not a poor beggar. He doesn't need our, our scraps. He wants our hearts. But he reminds us of who he is. I am a great king, says the Lord, of heaven's armies. And my name is feared among the nations. God is great. This is not a phrase that we say. It is a truth that rings throughout of eternity. God is great. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded that he's not just buddy Jesus. That he is God Almighty, King of Kings, Lord of Eternity. He is the commander of all of the armies of heaven and of all things beyond. Everything exists by his command and at his, his will, everything could cease to exist. He is God. And he reminds us of who he is because we need to be reminded 
And he reminds these priests too, they said not only did they neglect their service, they were neglected their ministry. And he tells them, he says, he has a command for them. He says, listen, you priests, this command is for you as though to punctuate what I say next. This is important. This is your ministry. And he gives them some examples of how they failed in this ministry as well. This is what he expects. He says, the purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring, we bring life and peace. That's why there are priests, to have a ministry of life and peace. That's what he called them to do. And he didn't just tell them to do it. He gave them life and peace. He says, because I've given you life and peace, now you can have a ministry of life and peace. So that the people of the nation would have that. And his name would be greatly revered. That would be a great thing. That's what they're supposed to do. Not only that, do they have this great ministry of life and peace, not woe and doom, which is, would be a lousy ministry, but do they have life and peace, what they're supposed to do? He says this, the words of a priest's lips should pers- uh, preserve knowledge of God. And the people should go to them for instruction. To be a priest was an honored position. They were supposed to not just have a ministry of life and peace, but also one of wisdom and truth. One where they have the privilege of standing as a representative of God and saying, this is God's will for us, and this is who he is. They have this life and peace and ministry and truth. That's who they were called to be, but instead they had a ministry of corruption. It says, but you priests have left God's paths. Your instruction have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's army. Get that, but you priests have left God's paths. They were supposed to have all of these great things, and what was their ministry? Instead of one of life and peace and, and, and wisdom and truth, their ministry, because they treated God with contempt, because they treated God as someone who deserved leftovers, because the reality of their lives didn't match the testimony from their lips, because they were just went through the motions and became religious instead of having a love relationship with God, instead of drawing people to Jesus, instead of having a ministry of that life and peace and wisdom and truth, their ministry themselves were actually drawing people away from God. That's what they did. They neglected their ministry. And was just proof that they didn't love God. And then God turns to the people. And he says to them that you also have failed me. And he begins by talking to them about really who they are. He says, are we not all children of the same father? Are we not created by the same God? Now this is not some universalism thing. Remember context, by the way, is so important. Who is he talking to? The Israelites. Right? And he's saying to them, we all have the same Father, God. Right? And we all the same Creator. The same guy who created this nation. Right? It's the same God. It's not like he, a different God made the Levites than who made the Benjamites. We stand as a nation, as a people, because we were made by the same Father, the same God. We worship Him together. What we have together is important. And he says then, why then do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? And they were getting so distracted by the particulars and the little things. They were being, looking at the things that they held that were not as essential. But they were looking at those things so they could look down their nose at some other person who should be their brother or sister in the Lord. And I said, this is not right. Remember who you are and why you are here. You were chosen by God's grace. You were saved by God's grace. You are kept by God's grace. It is your Lord and your Savior that keeps you, who I, that you should draw your identity in. 
based upon who he is, that should change how we live. And he talks to them, and how do they not live according to that great calling and that great people that they were called to be because of this great God and Savior whom they should draw their identity from? The first thing it says, they neglect God's, uh, God-centered family. And it goes through this whole list of things that they've done wrong. And it says, Judah's been unfaithful and a testable thing in Israel and Jerusalem. Now look at that, detestable, unfaithful. What is, what is this horrible crime that they've committed? Says the men of Judah had defiled the Lord, the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. And we would think, boy, that's not politically correct. You know, God gave his people parameters for godly marriage. He said, I designed marriage. This is these are the parameters for my people. This is what you're supposed to enter into, right? This I designed it. And he gave his people, Israel, special parameters in that. And he said, you're going to be my holy people and you're going to marry people inside the faith because my name is to be revered. I want to make sure that my nation isn't pulled apart. And instead of that, when it became inconvenient, when it, when it became like an antiquated kind of old rule, because now they came back to the promised land and not... Those were rules were written, those laws were written centuries before by Moses when the people were coming into the Holy Land. Certainly God doesn't mean that's his plan for marriage now. And so as people started marrying the Samaritans and, and the Canaanites and the people from around, and they said, you know what, I know God has these rules in Scripture for what marriage is supposed to be, but we don't like those rules, and they really don't apply today. You know, marriage, marriage matters to God. In fact, marriage matters to us as humans. So marriage was the first human institution that God created. He said when he made us, he made us male and female. And it says, and therefore a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. God designed marriage for humans just as much as he, I mean, it's part of our very design. It's who we are. And when the nation of Israel started deconstructing marriage and telling God that they're going to do marriage their own way, the nation lost its identity, didn't it? You know, but not a whole lot's changed in thousands of years, has it? Because God has designs for marriage and tells us exactly what it's supposed to be. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one. But when we redefine marriage and we start taking apart because God's way of marriage is so, so old, It doesn't match our culture. We lose our identity. And it is no, it's right to the very core level of how we were created and designed. And it's not a popular concept, but who cares? God's the one who designed us, and He knows what's best for us. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, that, that as we deconstruct marriage, people are now having all kinds of identity crises, even down to the gender level. We just don't even know who we are anymore. And it's not a slam against people who are lost. It's a, it, it's a fact that we are lost because we're not following God. And the church, his people, should have been the beacon of the standard. And so while the rest of the world didn't live according to the standard and were falling apart, his people, by even the marriage, were supposed to stand together and through their families show that God was holding them together and there was a different way of life and they didn't have those same identity crises. But as soon as they started throwing those things away, the nation had an identity crisis and began to fall apart and he slams them for it as he should. 
He then talks about how they've done even more than just redefine it. He says that they've uh, been unfaithful and, and done a testable thing, and how they've they just uh, they don't even uh, they don't honor marriage amongst their people anymore. Not only are they marrying people outside of the faith, but it says in, even in the faith, they they divorce one another all the time. It became a very common thing. And marriage wasn't no longer holy. It wasn't recognized that you had a covenant before God. And so you see that marriage begins to fall apart. And it affects their relationship with God and how he treats them. He says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? And God says, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. God takes our vows seriously. That's why when I do premarital counseling, almost half the people that start premarital counseling don't end up getting married. And it's not the fact that we're trying to talk them out of marriage. It's that we walk them through what does it mean? What are you vowing before God? And about half the people get to a point where they say, we need a, we need a timeout. Now, oftentimes, after a timeout, they end up getting married. But it's a serious thing. God holds us to our vows. And it doesn't mean that there's no grace or mercy for those who go through divorce. I know it affects so many in our culture. In fact, I invite you. We did a a sermon last year. We went real in-depth as to what what do we do with divorce? Where is God's mercy and grace and what do you do after that? And there's a lot of mercy and grace and healing for that. And if you need to hear that, then go. But I want you to understand that the standard is this. We make a vow, we keep it. And the nation as a whole wasn't keeping it. The nation as a whole created a culture in which marriage was disposable. Family was disposable. And it allowed men, basically, instead of to love and to be a relationship of love, became a relationship of selfishness. And they would have a wife, and they would love her until she stopped looking so pretty, and then they would get a different woman. And in order to be religious and not have two wives, they would cut off the first wife and leave her destitute. Because when we don't... (laughs) When we don't live lives of love, we live lives of selfishness. And it's a detestable and a horrible thing. And God calls us beyond that. And that's why we make vows for marriage, by the way. You don't take a vow to do something. You don't take a vow to eat an ice cream cone, right? You don't take vows to do things that are always easy. Like, but you take vows to do things that are important. I think I'm going to be coaching football for my son this year. And every one of those kids has got to give us their covenant that they're going to do the work. And the reason is because right now, before the season, it's a lot of fun. They say, I want to do it. Of course I want to do it. And all the fun before them. But when they're out there and they're running and they're sweating and, and they're bleeding and they're hurt and they're bruised, they're going to want to quit, right? But they made an agreement that we're going to hold them to. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when they win and they're playing the games and they're having the fun, it's going to be worth it. We make covenants for important things, vows for important things, and that's why God blesses us with them. So we don't give up when things are hard. When societies devalue marriage and families, everything falls apart. Our desires go unchecked. People suffer. We trade selfishness for love. God's not pleased. And that's why in 2.16 God says, I hate divorce. He says, divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So he says, and this is important for us, so guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So how we treat one another is directly respectful. How do we love in God? 
And they neglected that family, but that's not all they neglected. They neglected God's uh, God-centered morals. And he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have you wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying, all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? You had a kid come to you and just like all the time challenging your rules. I imagine teachers where they get that all the time. You're just like weird, like, come on. (laughs) But even more so, we're wearying God when we say your morals are off. How is it right that I'm supposed to forgive that bozo? How is it right that I'm supposed to love this person? Your your laws are burdensome and I don't they don't make any sense to me, so I don't think I'm gonna keep them. That's what they're saying. When we call wrong right and, and right wrong, God's getting exasperated with us. He's like, Come on. Am I not all knowing? Am I not completely righteous? Don't you think I might know a thing or two about what's right and wrong? And he gets exasperated with his people, his people who continually to challenge him. You know, obedience when we're doing what we're already going to do is not true obedience, is it? It's just convenience. Right? If I tell my son, I say, Thomas, go, you know, go down and read a book. And he's already reading the book. He's not obeying me. He's just doing what he was already going to do. When I ask him to take out the trash and he does it, now that's obedience because there's never been a time. Actually, I take that back. He, last week, he went and took out the trash for me. It was really awesome on his own behavior. But here's the thing. Obedience is when we follow God even when we disagree. Obedience when we follow God when we don't understand. Obedience when we follow God when even in the midst of our doubt because we trust that he knows what he's talking about and we respect his position. And the people weren't doing that. They were saying, I want to follow God when I agree with him. Well, that just makes me my own Lord, doesn't it? And that's how they were neglecting God's morals. The original sin was this. It was, it was this very thing. It was a call to be our own gods. We ate the apple or the fruit because we wanted to be like God, right? To be able to come up with our own standard of right and wrong. How well does that work? In the history of humanity, when people come up with their own sets of morals, what does it always, always end up with? It ends up with strife and trouble, usually genocide. Every time, at least war, at least fighting, because here's the deal. If I have the right to make up my own standard of right and wrong, so do you. And we're not going to agree. And because I have now a moral stand, I can demonize you. Right? I can legitimately deep and you can do the same thing to me and now there is no negotiation because you are evil and you view me as evil and therefore I have to kill you and that's the way it works one of the ways that God brings peace back into our lives is he aligns us with his standards so we can all agree at least he knows what he's talking about people didn't uh, they didn't love God and so he takes a little break out and he talks again because he's going through them and he's showing them and he says, listen, you need a savior. And I think at this point in the book, as we get to chapter three and we recognize the depravity, because I don't know when I was reading this passage, it wasn't just the people of Israel that I was feeling convicted for. I was feeling convicted for me. 
And there's this thing that was saying to me, you know what, I haven't loved God the way that I really need to and I haven't revered Him the way that I need to and I'm not really following the way that I need to. Woe is me because He's the God of heaven's armies. And God, out of His mercy and His love, He takes this little parenthesis and He talks about the work of a Savior. That in the midst of our brokenness, He's not abandoning us. And He says, look, like behold, like wow, something big is happening Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's talking? God. God is coming. He's going to send a messenger first and then God himself is coming. What is he going to do? He's going to come to destroy us? No. He says, then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you are looking so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God himself was going to come and to bring a new covenant, a new way of, of responding to him. God was coming and there was going to be a messenger that came first. Now we know that this happened 400 years after that. John the Baptist came, prepared the way for Jesus. And God himself, Jesus came into the temple and declared a new covenant. And it just gives you goosebumps. That there's a new way that we can be made right with God and to love him. And God says, even in the midst of them not loving him, there would be a new way. But he says, who's going to be able to endure it when he comes? Who's going to be able to stand face to face with him when he appears? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. I think that's an amazing thing. That the work of this Messiah, when he brings the covenant, he's going to refine us, and he's also going to purify us. And there's the hope of that. That God himself is going to come and remove the, the wickedness on the inside that we're keeping us from him. And so with that hope and the knowledge that our hope still is in him, that we were still chosen by grace, that we were still saved by grace, that we were still kept by grace, he continues on and talks about how the people lack their love for God. And he says, should people cheat God? But you have cheated me. And they said, well, you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And he says, you've cheated me at the tithes and the offerings do me. They neglected God-centered stewardship. They got so wrapped up in their own lives and their own wants and their own world that they decided at some point that everything that they owned was theirs. They didn't recognize that they were God's peoples. They were purchased by Him, kept by Him. Everything that they had was by His hand. That they were owned by God, which means everything they own is God's. And so they were bringing God their leftovers when the reality was God has everything. And instead of this, they were choosing selfishness and they were looking at their own lives and they were choosing fear and not trusting the God of their father to really care for him like he would, like he promised to. And because out of that fear and out of that selfishness, they brought to God when they had opportunity to. And they said, you know, we're going to steward God's money our own way to meet our own needs and our own desires because we don't trust you, God, in the way that what you've given us. We don't trust you that you're actually going to take care of us. Can you imagine your kid saying that to you? God is worthy of being trusted. He's never been, he's not a deadbeat dad. He says, trust me. And he gives us opportunity. He gives his people opportunity. And he said, you know what? Here's how you prove it. Give me the first tenth. You don't even know the rest of the harvest is coming in, but give me that first tenth. Because it proves to you that you trust me. Give me your best, not your worst, because it proves to you that I'll give you all good things. Jesus said, where our treasures are hard as also. 
it shows us that this world is a vapor. It is gone so quickly. And so it helps us to live for the eternal things, the right things, and to remind ourselves daily that, you know what? This world, God will give us the exact amount of wealth that we need in this world to do exactly what he calls us to do in this world because we are just stewards of his time and his, and his efforts and his energy here. That's all we are because our real wealth is up there and our real glory is up there, right? And so when the people forgot that, they stopped loving God and trusting him and they separated from him and they weren't in his, his embrace to be able to take care of him. And so he amazed this amazing thing, which every pastor talks about at least once in a while. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it. Try it. Put me to the test. Because he's not giving them some kind of special new thing. You understand that God loves you. God cares for you. Jesus said it this way. He said, look at the people of this world that spend their entire lives, waste their entire lives, wondering, worrying about what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Where am I going to, what am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? That's the way that occupies the minds of the pagans. But he says, not so for you. How do we step away from that? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? Give your hearts and everything to God. He says, then all these things will be added unto you. And he's talking to people that want to follow him. You can be a Christian and be living well outside of God's provision for your life because you're misusing his, his resources. And if I was a good a manager and I had an employee that was misusing the company's resources, I probably wouldn't be giving the person more resources. But the person that is really doing exactly what I want them to do, that's the one I'm going to trust with more. And Jesus gives lots of parables that show that very same thing. If you want to claim God's promise that he will care for you, you have to give him your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all those things will be given to you. He tells the people in the Old Testament the same thing. He's not changing. Bring him your first. Bring him your best. Trust him with your heart. Trust him with your all. And then let him take care of you. And God does a great job of taking care of his people. It's an amazing thing. Lastly, the people neglected God by this, or didn't love them. They were neglecting God-centered faith. It says, you've done a terrible thing. Of, uh, you've been said terrible things about me, says the Lord. They said, what do you mean? What have we said against you? And you have said, what's the use of serving God? Didn't I tell you that question was going to be in the message? Yeah, there. What's the use of serving God? What do we have to be gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? What does it matter we live in a world that asks us that all the time. You're going to be ridiculed all the time because we don't live for the things of this world. We don't. We live for bigger things. To live for this world is way too small. We've been set apart from that. We've been called to great things. Think about the main motivations of humans. Wealth. What do you get? You are now a child of God. You have the wealth of all of heaven that says yours. And there's a day that we're going to have that wealth beyond compare. Wealth that will not end is yours. How about this? How about notoriety? A lot of people want to be known or to build a name for themselves. What would happen in this world? Let's say you became emperor of the world. Then you die because that's what happens. And in three generations, kids are going to curse your name because they've got to memorize it for history. That's what's going to happen. Right? 
Notoriety. What are you living for? You're going to build a name for yourself here? I tell you what, when you are in Christ, the angels threw a party on the day you were saved. You are a child of the royal family of heaven. When you get there, you're not going to have to tell people your name. They're going to know you. You have notoriety you can't even understand. You already have that. Why would we live for something so small as this? Or how about love? Love's a big motivator in life. We do all kinds of things to live our lives to get more people to love us. But no matter how much love that we try to manipulate and work towards in this world, it all ends. But you are part of God's family. God loves you with a, with a passion that never ends. He cares for you in a way that you can never fully comprehend. He loves you. And we have a church family that loves you forever. He says, so don't neglect the true faith. Don't say that it doesn't matter to serve God. Don't live a life that's so small. But then he finishes with this. He's an example of repentance. He says, those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always taught of his name. God knows our hearts, and when we turn to him, he records it. It's precious to him. And they feared him, and he said, I'm going to save you. And the Lord of Armin said, this is what God says, on the day of judgment, it's going to come, and it's going to be like a furnace, but on that day, the arrogant wicked are going to be burned up by straw. And they're going to be consumed, the roots and branches with all, right? The people who don't turn to God, it matters if you don't love God. But for those who loved him, he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping like joys with calves from the pasture. It matters that we turn to God and that we love him. And he gives us a promise of repentance. He says, look, I'm sending the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord when he arrives. And his preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. And that's not talking about dads and kids. It's talking about the fathers of the faith. The nation's heart would be turned back to their God. And the, nation, and, and, and the hearts of the fathers, right? The, the passion of the, of the patriarchs and the prophets would be the same. It would beat the same as with the people. And what did John the Baptist do? He preached a message of repentance and turned the hearts of the people back to God to prepare the way for Jesus who came. God came. It's application zone. When we get to the end of this book, what do we pick up from this? There's a lot of things. But here's the first one. That God is holy. God is different. He is not like an earthly ruler. He is not like anything in this world. He is holy and he deserves something. And that is this. He is worthy. He deserves our love. He deserves our best. He deserves our all. You cannot walk through this life treating God like, like second best. He is different. He is worthy. Next thing that we, we gain from this book is this, that he is righteous. That God always does what is right and he knows what is right all of the time. And he will never do what is wrong. And he will, he will judge the wicked. But he will save those that he loves. And that's because the last thing we see in this book is that God is loving. God, God is a loving, a fiercely passionate God. He is very, very loyal. Even when we are not. He chose his people. He kept his people. Uh, he saved his people for a reason. And we have that same, that same God. So as we bring this series to a close, how do we respond? Well, here's some things that I have offered to do. Take out your connection card. Here on the back side, there's some things that we can do. The first one is this. To memorize Malachi 1.6. Because in our own motivations, we ourselves are no better than the Israelites. And if you think that we are, then you're being prideful. 
The reality is we live in the same world that they do, and we have the same sinful natures that they struggled with. And it's so easy to put God on the back shelf when life's either really hard or really easy. (laughs) So remember who God is. Maybe this verse can help us. Or how about you just read Malachi? Read the whole thing. I gave you some... This book doesn't need a whole lot of interpretation or stuff. It's a pretty straightforward book. It's amazing. And ask yourself as you read it, where is your heart with God? And where is your hope? How about this? Pray. How about turn back to God? That's one of the calls of this book. That's one of the reason he wrote it. Is when we see as God's people that we're going astray, we need to turn back. And if you are feeling conviction in your heart or your spirit this morning... That's just a warning thing for God, but it's also let it help you, motivate you, turn back to God. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to love him, love him like he loves you. So turn back to him. And if you need some help with how to do that, please come talk with me. How about this? Something to do? How about to honor God and respect him? How do you honor and respect him? Well, do the opposite of what the people of Israel were doing. How about that? How about... Instead of neglecting all his his family and his morals and his ways and his ministry, why don't you just engage in those things? Honor his his ways. Trust that he knows what he's doing. If there's areas in your life that you doubt, you say, God, I don't understand how that could possibly be right. It makes no sense. Trust him and say, I'm going to do it anyway. From how you spend to how you treat your family to how you treat others to how you talk about God. Maybe it's a time that you say and you really commit yourself to saying, my life is really his and I'm going to honor him with my all in all. Maybe there's something else that you need to do, something specific that the Spirit is putting on your heart. Let me know if it is so I can pray for you. There are other commitments that you might be wanting to make or if you have a prayer request, please let us know. We'll be praying for you this week. And the second one, we'll be taking our offerings. And please drop this off in the offering basket um, in just a minute, along with your tithes and your offerings. Let this be another offering of yourself back to our worthy and our wonderful and our loving and our powerful God. Please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being you and we love you. And we thank you that you have saved us. (laughs) Father, even before that, you chose us and you saved us and you keep us by your grace. Help us, Father, to respond to you in that same kind of love. Help us to be passionate about you like you are about us. Let us treat you with the honor and the the respect that you deserve because you are our Heavenly Father, but also because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You deserve our all. So we want to bring that to you this morning. I pray, Father, as we bring these commitments to you that that you would help us to keep them, uh, to grow closer in love with you. Father, I also pray that as we bring our tithes and offerings to you, Father, let them be a blessing to you. Let us not bring our our leftovers, but, Father, our first and our best as a way of showing our dependence upon you and our trust in you, that you are God who is our Father and keeps your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use those gifts, those tithes, those offerings to fulfill your purposes in this community and in this world. We ask that in the powerful and beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.